All right, well, some of you have asked me, why Mark? And I, some, to some of you, I sarcastically said, well, why not? Right? So why not Mark? It's one of the books in the Bible, so let's go for it, right? Well, first and foremost, at the outset of my ministry here, after Ephesians, I thought it was a very uh, practical and important book that we looked at, but after that, I wanted us to go back to the basics. We are followers of Jesus, and it's important to know who we are following. If we say we're following Jesus, we need to know him. And it's good to be reminded of what Jesus did and what he said. And I wanted us to take a fresh look at the stories that we all know so well. Of all the Gospels, I think Mark has a unique and very applicable way of explaining who Jesus is. And there are two major themes in the Gospel of Mark that, for me, sum up why I chose the book for us to look at. It's Jesus as son and servant. So first of all, Jesus is son. Jesus is the son of man, and he's also the son of God. And both of these terms are packed with theological and Christological meaning. Through the gospel, we'll see that Jesus has all authority and he has all power. We also see that Jesus sees those of us who follow him. He will bring judgment on those who oppose him. And he will vindicate or help or save all the oppressed and persecuted who actually follow him. Major theme that we'll see. And then second is that Jesus is a servant. Jesus is God's suffering servant as pictured in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. And you'll, we'll get familiar with that passage as we go on. But Jesus is the Messiah planned by God before time to come and rescue mankind. Yet he is a suffering Messiah. And he set us an example of how to live. Jesus modeled sacrificial service to one another. So on the heels of studying the letter to Ephesians, we, where we learn that God's epic plan for all the ages was to unite all things in Jesus. And when we learned, we learned the importance of unity through loving and serving one another. And I thought it would be valuable for us to go back and study Jesus and who he is and how God's plan came to fruition in him and how he launched that new way of living for him and loving one another. All right? Now, have you, have you ever read a really good novel or series of novels? One of the types that you don't want to put down, right? Any of you? I'm the only one. Okay, good. All right. Well, anyway, um, when you get into the novel, you realize that it's not just a simple story. All right? The book is also an allegory for something bigger in life. I think of, like, when I was, when I was in Bible school back in the day, I read uh, Lord of the Rings for the first time. All right? This is before the movies came out. So before the movies came out, Lord of the Rings, and it was a trilogy. And it had great meaning and such great depth. I wanted to go back and read it again. And then there's another series, Ender's Game. I don't know if anyone's ever read Ender's Game. Really, really, yeah, if you're into sci-fi, into sci-fi. Really interesting stuff. Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Carries a huge meaning, wonderful to read to your kids. And then there's this, new, this newer one out there, The Wingfeather Saga by Andrew Peterson. Wonderful allegory, good stuff. Good stuff to read to your kids. As you finish the series, though, you read these three or four books in a row, and you finish the series, you want to go back to the beginning and review each chapter in light of the end, because the end all of a sudden is like, oh, now I get it. I get what they were talking about. So you want to reread the flashbacks and references to outside events or things outside of the actual books, and you, 
You go back to certain events or chapters in the book because they struck you as being so appropriate to what you're going through in your life right now, right? And it's a mark of a good book, a good novel. It captures your imagination. It keeps you reading it again and again. And it makes you want to enter that world. It makes you hunger for more and it gives you a larger perspective on life. Mark's gospel is not a novel, but it is one of those larger-than-life stories. There's purpose behind each and every word that Mark chooses. He is a master craftsman who is not out to simply preserve a historical record of the life of Jesus. He writes in such a way as, as um, to take us back to the beginning. We want to go back to the beginning. We want to read it over and over again. He re that's the way he writes. And Mark is establishing a solid Christology and theology through his gospel writing. But he shrouds it in mystery, and he hides it in a story, and he veils it in secrecy. And we're going to see that as we go through. But why do that? Why not just come out and say what he means to say? Why not just say, well, this is Jesus, he's the Messiah, boom, be done. I believe the answer is summed up in Mark 4, 24 and 25, which we read today. Or, or TJ read for us. If you want to turn there, you can. Mark chapter 4, 24 to 25. And he said, Jesus said to them, Pay attention, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Mark wants us to pay attention to the details in his gospel, to grasp a hold of the Old Testament references and echoes that he's going he's gonna to bring out, to be in awe at Jesus, our Messiah. Mark puts this quote in the context of a parable of a lamp bringing light and revealing secret things. That lamp is a reference to Jesus. And Mark wants us to understand that the measure of effort that we put into listening and studying the life of Jesus will result in an even greater measure of knowledge and understanding and intimacy with him. Being a disciple of Jesus actually takes some work on our part. For those who put time into understanding and following the life of Jesus, still more knowledge and understanding will be added to them. The converse is also true. If we refuse to pay attention, even what little knowledge and wisdom that we do have could be taken away. And we'll see this truth played out in the gospel as Jesus turns the status quo on its head. The insiders become the outsiders and the outsiders become the insiders. So the Jewish religious leaders chose not to pay attention and their understanding and their faith was diminished. They were lost. They were outside. They were not part of the kingdom of God. However, the outcasts and the Gentiles who actually paid attention were rewarded with understanding and faith in Jesus. They became the insiders, the members of the kingdom of God. And the application for us is to pay attention. Pay attention. Each and every word in Mark's gospel is full of rich meaning. Each story points us to Jesus. Each story reveals something more amazing and more wonderful about who Jesus is. Let's make sure that we are putting in time, reading through his gospel, watching for the unexpected, listening to what Jesus says. As we do, the Holy Spirit will give us insight and he will measure out knowledge and wisdom in proportion to the effort that we put into it. 
So pay attention and do the study, and you won't be disappointed. So now let's pay attention to some of the background information of this incredible gospel. Here we go. So the background to Mark's gospel. First, the authorship. Even though none of the gospel writers put their names on their accounts, they don't say, you know, I, John, wrote this, or I, Mark, wrote this gospel. Each author is really uncontested. The author of Mark is none other than John Mark, who we read about in the book of Acts and other places in the New Testament. We find John Mark traveling with Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts. In, in fact, at one point, Paul and Barnabas actually have a disagreement over John Mark's involvement in their ministry, whether or not to take him with them, and they separate over the issue. And then later, Paul attests that Mark is a very valuable asset to ministry, and he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Now, Mark also traveled with Peter, and Peter mentions that in 1 Peter 5.13. And according to church historians and church fathers, he acted as Peter's translator and as his interpreter as he traveled around the Mediterranean Sea. Mark was not an eyewitness to Jesus, neither was he one of Jesus' disciples. Instead, he wrote down what Peter told him. He wrote down Peter's account. And it's believed that Mark wrote down the message that Peter orally preached as he went around the Mediterranean world. So really, Mark is Peter's uh, vision of who Jesus was. Now, church father Papias left a written account in, in the, like the first century, like 110 AD, of what John the Elder, one of Jesus' disciples, you got John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, he said this about Mark's gospel, okay? And one of the church fathers, Papias, recorded what John said about Mark's gospel. Does any of that make sense? I hope it does. It was a little confusing to me when I first heard it. Here's what John said about Mark's gospel. The elder used to say, John the elder, Mark, having become Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately everything he remembered, though not in order, of the things either said or done by Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterward, as I said, followed Peter." who adapted the teachings to the needs of his hearers, but had no intention of giving an ordered account of the Lord's saying. Consequently, Mark did nothing wrong in writing down the things as he remembered them, for he made it his one concern not to omit anything that he heard, nor to make any false statement in them. Now, it's a long quote, but I'm going to break it down a little bit. Here's what we learned from this quote. It's an important one. Number one, Mark is not an eyewitness, as we said but he received the contents from Peter who was. Peter's mentioned all through this gospel in environments that only he could have known, and we'll see that as we go through. And then number two, Peter adapted his teachings to the needs of his hearers. This means that strict chronology was not the important detail in his speaking or in Mark's recording of what Jesus did. What was important was getting the message of who Jesus was across cultural and geographic boundaries. I think that's important because when we look at Mark's gospel, it's not going to be chronological. It's going to be thematic. And Mark made it his one concern not to omit anything that he heard. I believe that part of the reason that Mark's gospel has a different literary style than the other ones is that he was transcribing the oral teachings of Peter, who was an uneducated fisherman. So we're going to have a lot of details. They may seem kind of out there, but they're actually important to the story because they came from Peter, the eyewitness. And then Mark's gospel contains many descriptions that are 
that are omitted in other Gospels. Some are seemingly insignificant as Jesus sleeping on a cushion in a boat. And then some are as significant as Jesus taking little children into his arms. Details that are left out of those other Gospels. But they're important enough for Peter and for Mark to mention. So Jesus' followers were salt of the earth people. We are salt of the earth people. Take heart in the fact that Jesus uses you and I as salt of the earth people to expand his kingdom. Now who's the audience? The audience, it was, this book was written by Mark in Rome to Roman Christians, most likely in early 60s after, uh, so Jesus was, was crucified around 30 and in the 60s this book was written. Now many scholars now agree that Mark was actually the first gospel to be written. It is believed that Matthew and Luke actually expanded upon Mark's gospel as they wrote theirs so that they could contextualize their message to a different audience and for different reasons. But Mark's was like the basic uh, gospel that they looked at in order to write theirs. So Mark was written primarily to Gentiles who had believed in Jesus and were in the city of Rome, living in the city of Rome. And there's strong evidence for this in that Mark, more than any other gospel writer, will give lengthy explanations regarding aspects of Jewish culture and religion in order to establish the context and clarity for the stories. A great example is in chapter 7 where Mark writes an aside and he's explaining the Pharisees' tradition of ceremonially washing their hands and all this stuff. And you're like, why so much detail? Well, because he was writing for an audience that didn't understand that stuff. He would not have needed to do that for a Jewish audience. And then Roman Christians, these were Roman Christians who were suffering under the persecution of Nero. How fearful it must have been to live under this crazy, sorry, this crazy ruler. He burned much of Rome and he blamed the Christians for it. He tortured and brutally executed Christians in the Colosseum. He tortured uh, and he took Christians and he, he took them in clothes and dipped them in wax and then he would burn them at the stake alive and he would light his garden at night with them. He was barbaric and this audience needed assurance as they're living under this and they're living in this city. They needed assurance and affirmation that this Jesus whom they were following was indeed the Messiah, the one who had been promised to bring salvation to all nations. They needed to be reassured that the persecution they were enduring was for the sake of the truth and not a fairy tale. They needed assurance that they were seen by Jesus and that he would save them from their unjust suffering. And I think one of the greatest encouragements that we can take from Mark's gospel is that Jesus is aware of what we go through. And he has the authority and the power, and he will make all things right in the end. It's a theme that runs all through this book. So that's the, the audience. And now the arrangement. The order of sequence is typically more topical than it is chronological, as I said earlier. You'll find that the different Gospels report the same events in a different sequence. And as, does this mean that Jesus kind of bounced all over, he did it twice? No, it just means that they, they were recording uh, according to topic and not necessarily according to chronology of how Jesus' life went. According to Papias' testimony concerning Mark's gospel, the stories are not in order, but they are accurate, which is really important. They're accurate of what Jesus actually did. And the gospel follows the oral, tradition, oral preaching tradition of Peter. And we have an example of Peter preaching in Acts chapter 10, and we had uh, TJ read that this morning. I just want to read through that again. 
And this is most likely how Peter preached wherever he went. And there were certain points that he wanted to hit that Jesus said, make this important as you preach. All right? So in verse 36 of Acts chapter 10, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism John proclaimed. So he's always going to mention the, the idea of John the Baptist coming first. And we'll see in Mark chapter 1, 1 through 15, John the Baptist is indeed mentioned. And then in verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so we see his ministry of healings. We're they focus on how Jesus ministered and how he healed and how he went about and he taught. And that's most of Mark. Mark chapter 1 through Mark chapter 10 is going to focus on the works of Jesus and how he went about healing. And then we get to chapter, or verse uh, 39. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him, and after he rose from the dead. So there's going to be a focus on the crucifixion, as, as Peter mentions in Acts, and then also on the resurrection. And those are both in Mark chapter 11 through 15 and Mark chapter 16. So Mark is, Mark is recounting the things that, that Peter would say, and Peter's given us a really short synopsis here in Acts. And then the last part, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify, this is verse 42, that he is the one appointed by God to, to judge the living and the dead. So there's this commission of the apostles. Jesus sends the apostles out with the message. And so Peter's recounting it here, and we're going to see it in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, how Jesus sends out the apostles. And then the last part of it is, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter goes back at the very end of this preaching here in Acts chapter 10 and says, And it's all in fulfillment of prophecy. And we're going to see all through Mark that there's fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus had done all through the book. And so you see there's a pattern to how these preachers would go about preaching, and Mark's gospel follows the preaching pattern of Peter. Now why is this significant? Why did I take that much time to go through that? Well, it points to the heart of the gospel. What is the most important part of the gospel? What are we supposed to be looking for in the book of Mark? The core message that Jesus commanded his disciples to get to the rest of the world. So it points us to that. And secondly, it roots us in the theology more than the chronology. It's not just a history book. It's a theology of who Jesus was. It roots us in the theology more than the chronology of the eyewitness accounts of the apostles. The sequence of events in Mark's gospel are designed to draw the reader's attention to particular topics and themes. So get this, the main purpose of each story in the gospel is to tell you something about Jesus. That's the main purpose of each and every parable, each and every story, each and every thing, situation that comes up. It's to tell you something about Jesus. The moral or ethical lessons, while not unimportant, are secondary to telling us the truth about Jesus. The moral of the story is not usually the main purpose of the story, although it is important. So we'll look at both of those as we go through. And this will become clearer as we go through it together. All right, so what is Mark about? What is Mark about? Well, I'll tell you this. Jesus is the undisputed central figure 
of every story bar two. There's only two stories that aren't about Jesus, and those are about John the Baptist. And they're very important stories. And those two stories are in uh, Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 6. Mark records very little of Jesus' teachings. So there's, you'll notice there's no Sermon on the Mount like in Matthew and in Luke. And many of the parables and the stories that you'd find in Luke or Matthew are actually missing. Mark focuses more on what Jesus does than what he says. We learn about him through the actions and interactions that he has with others. As one commentator put it, the person of the teacher is more important than the content of his teaching in the book of Mark. So some themes in Mark. Why did I entitle the series Jesus, Son, and Servant? Because of these themes right here. So number one, Son of Man is going to be a theme. It's Jesus refers to himself 15 times as the Son of Man throughout this gospel. And he claims to be the Son of Man. Two places in particular that I want to point out here right now, and then we're going to look at them later on when we get to those points. But in chapter 13, verse 26, he says, The Son of Man will come with clouds. And then in chapter 14, he's standing before the high priest as he's being um, accused. And he says, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now these two quotations come from Daniel chapter 7, which we had TJ read this morning. Daniel chapter 7, if you want to look there, you can. Otherwise, I'm going to read it here. Here's Daniel chapter 7. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there's that with the clouds, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him or should worship him. Now, in Jewish times they knew this was pointing to the Messiah. This was God. This was the Son of Man. So Jesus is using the term Son of Man with intention. He's not just haphazardly throwing that out there. It's with intention. And he is claiming to be the one who stands before the Ancient of Days to receive authority and dominion over everything. Remember in Ephesians, he is the one in whom God is uniting everything. This was Jesus claiming to be the Messiah for those who had ears to hear. So there's Son of Man, and then there's Son of God. Son of God. It's not mentioned as much as the Son of Man, but this title for Jesus is very significant, nonetheless. What makes it significant is that we see it bookended in the book of Mark. So in the intro and in the end of the book of Mark, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. And in Mark, Mark 1, verse 1, Mark says that this is the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. So right out of the gate, he, he boldly asserts that Jesus is deity. And then Mark goes on to demonstrate his assertion or his, his, his demonstration there that Jesus is deity. God attests to it himself at the baptism. He says, this is my beloved son. And then at the transfiguration in chapter 9. And then demons attest to it in chapter 1, verse 24, chapter 3, verse 11, chapter 5, verse 7. So demons attest to his Son of God title. And then at the very end of the book, and this is very fascinating, we'll look at it when we get there, in chapter 15, verse 39, the one person throughout all, the whole book that actually attests to Jesus being the Son of God is a Roman centurion. Not a Jew, but a Gentile, attesting that Jesus is the Son of God. 
So there's Jesus, son of man and son of God, and then there's this theme of the suffering servant. All through the gospel, we see people suffering at the hands of sickness or at the hands of the scribes or the Pharisees or demons or death. They're suffering all through the gospel. And Jesus interacts with those who are suffering. He talks about how being his disciple includes suffering. And he prophesies of his own suffering three times in the gospel. At the end of the gospel, Jesus himself suffers at the hands of the scribes and priests. This was actually a surprise ending to the Messiah's life. The Jews thought something completely different would happen to the Messiah. So Mark turns the long-held Jewish beliefs regarding the Messiah and the nature of his, his work on its head. Jesus redefines the work of the Messiah from being a conquering king to being a suffering servant. Jesus is the embodiment of that. I'm just going to turn to Isaiah chapter 52 really quick. If I can find it. Isaiah chapter 52, just, just a few verses from this long portion, verse 13. Behold, my servant will act wisely, and he will be high and lifted up, and he will be exalted. And then in chapter 53, which is a continuation of this whole talk of this servant of the Lord, in verse 10, yet it is the will of the Lord to crush him. He has been put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. It was all there, but a lot of people missed what the nature of the Messiah would be. And Jesus comes and he turns it on his head. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, but out of his anguish, many will be accounted righteous. And he's talking about us. Because Mark portrays Jesus as a suffering servant, he does not include a genealogy or a birth narrative of Jesus. So in Luke and Matthew, we see that. Mark doesn't focus on that. He just comes right in. And Mark focuses on what Jesus does, the work of a servant, to prove who he was. How do you prove who a servant is? It's not their genealogy. It's the work that they do. And Jesus himself explains the purpose of his coming as Messiah in Mark 10, 45. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that would be, if I could encapsulate it, the key verse for the whole gospel. So we're going to see the importance of Jesus being the Son of Man and the Son of God, but also how he uses his authority and his power and his position and his influence to serve those whom society would deem unworthy. Jesus said it well in Mark 2, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call righteous, but sinners. There is hope for all of us who suffer, all of us who have been written off by society. Jesus sees us. And Jesus uses his power and authority to save us. It's a wonderful promise from the book of Mark. Couple other themes that will come out, and these are just, just for just freebies, okay? Cosmic conflict with authority and power. We're gonna see there is at least 20 references to unclean spirits and demons in the gospel. 
If you read the gospel straight through, it's actually quite noticeable. Mark demonstrates that Jesus has power over the spirit realm. Jesus casts out so many demons, it actually causes a stir. And they, at one point, accused Jesus of casting out demons by being the prince of demons himself, which is ludicrous. And we're going to look at that in a few weeks. And Mark shows us that Jesus has authority over the scribes and over the priests. His teaching was a God-given authority and power. Another theme we're going to see is this idea of touching or lifting up. There's a lot of physical acts that happen in the book of Mark. And there are quite a few references to Jesus touching and lifting up certain people in the gospel. And they're subtle references, but I think they're, they're not there by accident. And in careful reading, we, if we don't carefully read it, we would miss it. But I believe that Mark uses these vivid descriptions, unmentioned in other gospels actually, to describe how Jesus interacts with people who most people would overlook. And we'll look at why I think that's significant later on. Another theme is silence and mystery. Mark records Jesus silencing people from announcing who he is or what he's done for them about ten times in the gospel. Why would Jesus say, don't tell anybody what I just did for you? Why not shout it from the mountaintops? Jesus is the Messiah. He just healed me. Like, go out and tell everybody. Jesus says, no, keep it on the down low. Why does he do that? Another theme is this idea of desolate place or wilderness. It's also mentioned about ten times in the gospel. What's the significance of Jesus being a desolate place or going to a desolate place? What is Mark trying to tell us about Jesus in mentioning this place? Another theme is this idea of astonishment or marvel. It was frequently the response of the crowds to what Jesus did or what he said. Jesus turned heads. He proclaimed a topsy-turvy kingdom and a message that left people unsettled and wondering, what does this tell us about Jesus and the nature of his ministry? So astonishment. And then the last theme that we're going to bring out is this idea of urgency. You'll see the word immediately. If you read through even just the first chapter, you're going to see, why does Mark put immediately everywhere? It's about 40 times in the whole gospel that he uses this word immediately. So it is a theme. If the gospel is not necessarily written chronologically, then why the need to convey the idea of Jesus immediately going from one scene to the next? The gospel is full of activity where Jesus as the servant goes from place to place, helping, healing, and ministering people. So what does this immediately have to say about who Jesus is and what, how does that apply to us? So those are some of the themes that we're going to look at in Mark. We'll be noting these as we go through and highlighting their significance in the stories as, we, as they're used. All right, so finally, why study Mark? I'm going to wrap this all up. Why? First of all, I believe because of current application. I think it's very applicable to us. It was written for Gentile believers, remember? Just like us. The themes and the reasons for his writing will be very applicable to us in our context. We are quickly living in a country where Christianity is the minority and not the majority. We live, as, we live under the radar. We are shunned. Our viewpoints are silenced. We're viewed as bigots, as unethical, as believing in archaic and oppressive religion. We can often feel small and insignificant in our larger society kind of like those Christians in Rome. In fact, in a world that is much like ancient Rome, with nations struggling to be the best and the strongest and the richest, and businesses climbing their way to the top of the ladder, individuals who are all about building and maintaining their image through image management, the kingdom of God can seem elusive, out of touch, and a fantasy. 
the world's values and our values actually collide. Like the early Christians, we can wonder, has Jesus forgotten us? People are dying all around us and everything's going crazy and we're under this crazy ruler. Has Jesus forgotten us? And Mark's gospel reminds us that no one who has put their faith in Jesus is forgotten. And in the stories of Jesus, we'll be reassured that he does notice the oppression that some of us live under. And he will do something about it. We can also wonder, why are we suffering or shunned or silenced or misrepresented for what we believe? It's not fair. And we're going to see that Jesus, as the God's servant and the Messiah, he, was suffer he suffered and he was shunned and he was silenced and he was misrepresented for us. And it is a characteristic of being a follower of him that we go through those things. And Jesus will ultimately vindicate all those who are his. He will bring judgment upon all those who oppose him and his father's kingdom. And as I said earlier, there is hope for all of us who have been written off by society. Jesus sees you. And Jesus has authority and power to serve and to save you. And then a third question we can ask is, is the kingdom of God really true? Is what Jesus brought really a reality? In the shadow of big business, superpower nations, perfect specimen individuals, like that's what they portray online, are we really on the winning side? Is it really worth it? And Mark will answer those questions with an emphatic yes. The smoke and lights of the world is just that. And underneath it all is an empty hollowness swallowing everyone up. The world promises utopia society, prosperity, thousands of virtual friends, and freedom. But in the end, it delivers a mess and pain and conflict and ostracization and slavery. And Jesus produces a whole new way. He brings a whole new way, a better way. He is the way to true life, joy, true community, and peace, as we'll see in this gospel. So number one, I think there's current application. Number two, an appreciation for Jesus. We're going to come away with a, a renewed appreciation for Jesus. Sometimes we get so caught up in Christianity, in being the church, in being religious, we forget what it's all about. It's about Jesus. Not just Jesus as a moral teacher. Not just Jesus as an example. Not just Jesus as a man who, who lived like us. But Jesus as God. Jesus as the Son of Man. Jesus as the servant who died and was buried and rose again for us. We're going to come away with a, a, new, a renewed appreciation for Jesus. And then the third thing we can learn from this book is the nature of discipleship. Jesus taught a, a topsy-turvy message, one that turned the status quo, the understanding of a way of life, on its head. He taught that to be great, you must be a servant. He taught to, to live, you must die to yourself. He taught that to honor God, you must serve those less fortunate. And these are important lessons and teachings from Mark and ultimately Peter and ultimately Jesus. These thoughts summarize Jesus' message in his life. Though he was the Son of Man from Daniel 7, and the Son of God is attested by demons and God the Father himself. He was servant to all. He gave his life as a ransom for many. The Jews were hoping for a Messiah that would conquer the Romans and bring them out of spiritual and physical exile. Jesus revealed that the Son of God, the servant of the Lord, the Son of Man, 
turns that assumption on its head by demonstrating the true nature of who God really is, suffering and service. That tells us something about who God is. I'm excited to go through that with you. As we work through this gospel, we're going to learn about the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. We're going to be challenged with what it means to follow him. And we're going to be both grateful and convicted by Jesus' statement, the Son of Man came, to be, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So for us, no matter what we're going through, I believe this gospel's for us. Perhaps you're wondering if Jesus truly is who he says he is. Perhaps you wonder if all this suffering is worth it. Perhaps you doubt whether Jesus sees you in your predicament, in your small, insignificant life. Maybe it seems like a fairy tale to believe that Jesus will bring judgment on the evil and save all of us from this mess. Maybe you feel like Christianity is weak. It's on a decline. It has no influence. You hear the world telling you to be great, you must assert yourself. Build your self-esteem, lord it over others, pursue financial stability, have millions of friends on Facebook, and save your life. And then you read about Jesus. The way he exemplified seems weak and out of touch. He said humility, serving others, sacrifice, generosity, solitude, community, giving of our lives for him. Following Jesus may seem weak, embarrassing, out of touch, not the way to go, but we will learn that this is actually the way of true greatness and true life. And I'm excited for that. So through our study, we're going to be encouraged that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who stands before the Ancient of Days with all power and authority over all people, nations, and cosmic powers. He is the one leader that we can follow. He's the suffering servant of God who sympathizes with our weaknesses, with our temptations, and with our sufferings. As we follow him, he sees us and he acts on our behalf. Jesus has not forgotten us. And Jesus has authority and power to make all things right in the end. And Jesus' way of humbly living for others, loving our neighbors, and serving the oppressed is truly the way to life, peace, community, and joy. So I'll end with the verse we started with. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For that the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I firmly believe that as we delve into this foundational gospel and pay attention to the things Mark is pointing out about our Savior, that God will increase our faith, and that he will conform us more and more into the image of our Savior, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful gospel that you've given to us. It's full of truth. It's full of incredible stories that point to the way in which Jesus lived. I'm actually thankful that it's not full of a lot of teaching of Jesus, but full of his actions and how he interacted with people and the way he stooped down and he lifted up those who were oppressed. May we take great courage and great encouragement from who he is. And as we look at his life as being God eternal, the Son of Man, and yet he came to serve us. May that influence how we interact with the world around us. May it give us courage to act like Jesus. May it make us humble servants of those around us. Father, we commit this all into your hands and thank you for what you've taught us today. May we go out of here different than when we came. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>